You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Well, it's always an interesting experience for a preacher to come to a church outside, or at least for me, outside of a sermon series. And, and so Redeemer, like Mercy's Door, we, as a typical rhythm, are going left to right through one of the books of the Bibles. And so when it's my time to preach, I know where I'm preaching uh, because it is next. And so whenever you go somewhere else to a different church and, and you kind of get a one-off, you get this unique experience of going before the Lord and saying, God, what do you want me to preach? And so today, as I was just kind of spending time, I felt like the Lord said, Michael, I want you to preach on your favorite subject. And I was like, gosh, that sounds good. And so today, we're preaching on shame. Because I love it. I don't love it. It's not my favorite topic. It's far from it. But it certainly is one of the most pervasive ones in my life. And quite honestly, I think one of the most pervasive ones in the church. Uh, it was two years ago, just a little over two years ago, that I actually stood up, I'll call this uh, the pulpit, in this pulpit, and I preached for Easter weekend of 2021. And I preached and I looked uh, similar to this, maybe a few less gray hairs at that point in time, uh, but everything else probably looked fairly similar to what I look like now, except for there was one big difference. The big difference was I had a broken hand and none of you knew it. Uh, well, that's not true. One of you knew it. <laughs> I had a broken hand because just three days before Easter, Rachel and I had gotten into an argument. And I, in frustration and anger, walked away from the argument, walked down our hallway, and was confronted by an enemy called the hallway door. And after a brief struggle between me and the door, I ended up with a broken hand and the door not so much as a dent. Uh, now, if you, if you didn't catch uh, in the struggle, the struggle really consisted of me walking by the door, the door doing nothing, and me, in my anger, punching the door. And the next day, I went to the emergency room because my right pinky was completely swollen up and I couldn't move my hand and thought, I better go get an x-ray. And so I walked in, and I got the distinct joy of repeatedly telling people, one, my occupation, which was a pastor, and two, how did you receive this broken hand, sir? To which I got to say, uh, uh, mm, I hit it on a door. No, that's not right. I hit a door with it. And they, they said, well, we're, we really should cast your hand. And I said, uh, no, no. No, 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 we, we, don't, we don't need to do that. Uh, and they said, well, you really need to get some sort of cast on your hand. And so I ordered one. I received it. I wore it Saturday night. I got up Sunday to preach and thought to myself, I'm not going to wear this on Sunday morning. Now, listen, it's, it's fun to tell that story now. Um, well, no, it's not. It's not fun. But it is easier to tell that story now. It was not easy to tell it two years ago. 
I didn't say anything that Sunday when I preached. Um, Instead, I went through the message and went on my merry way and went through the week and prepared to wake up the next Sunday and preach again without the brace on, though I had been wearing it in my home during the week until the Lord finally said to me, are we going to talk about this? Are we going to talk about why you are hiding what is true? Or are we going to talk about where you're actually at and what actually happened? And are you going to be honest with people about how desperately you need the gospel? Now, what what made me hide? What made me cover up? What made me pretend? And quite honestly, what made me lie to others who cared for me and loved me and had so consistently been gracious and merciful towards me, and the answer is shame. Now, listen, I don't need to know all of your intimate lives to know that, statistically speaking, every single one of us here has experienced shame in the last week. That many of you have experienced shame this morning, and even more of you are experiencing shame right now as I'm talking about shame. And shame is one of those funny things that we know all about it, and yet it's really difficult for us to define. Let me just do this as as a bit of a a mental exercise. Close your eyes for, for two seconds, and I want you to imagine in your body what the physical feeling or sensation of shame feels like. What does shame feel like in your body, in your chest, on your shoulders. Now keep your eyes closed and and think now, instead of the physical feeling of shame, think about what shame sounds like. The sounds or exhales you make in the midst of shame. Think about what the words of shame sound like. You can open your eyes. We all know what shame is, but how do we define it? If I asked you for a definition of shame, you probably wouldn't do a great job of defining it. What you'd probably do is a good job of defining what it feels like. You might define why it happens or what causes it. Shame... Is, is not just a feeling. Uh, shame is a neurobiological event. It happens here and it happens here. Like we can record the events of shame. Doctors can sense it. They can witness it. They can see the manifestation of it mentally and physically. Researchers have concluded that shame begins in newborn infants at about the age of 15 months. Newborn infants at 15 months can experience shame. Scripture talks all about shame. Hundreds of times it references shame, but it doesn't necessarily give it a singular definition. The words it uses are translated, meaning things like nakedness, condemnation, vulnerability. Even one of the Hebrew words used to describe shame has the connotation of a a consuming fire. So let me give you a definition of shame before we talk about it 
in what Scripture talks about it. Here's my best attempt at defining shame. Shame is the experience of being a broken person in the midst of a broken world without the hope of that changing. Let me say that again. Shame is the experience of being a broken person in the midst of a broken world without the hope of that changing. See, see, shame occurs when we feel the lack of things that we were created to experience. Whether due to our own sin or the sin of somebody else or just simply existing in the midst of a world soaked by sin. Right? When we feel the real or potential loss of something like security or value or love or affirmation or comfort or relationship or identity or approval, when we face the lack of those things because of our own sin, because we've spoken to someone in a harsh way and we either recognize or fear that the consequence of that sin and the consequences of that sin in that sin, we will lose relationship from someone. Or because of that sin, we will lose the approval of that person. Or because of that sin, we will lose how they view us and our our value and our worth or our identity. We experience shame. When someone sins against us, when someone speaks harshly to us, their sin upon us makes us feel like we lose value, worth, comfort, safety, security. And shame isn't even just caused by our sin or somebody else's sin, just being in a world of sin. The death of someone close to us causes us to feel shame. Sickness in our own life makes us feel shame. Uh, Inadequacies that we might have, comparisons to other people make us feel shame. We experience as broken people the brokenness of the world. Shame accurately captures the experience of the fall. But it doesn't accurately capture the experience of the gospel. And this is what I want us to look at this morning in Genesis chapter 3. What is shame? What What does it do to us? And what do we do with it? So three truths about shame I want us to look at from Genesis chapter 3. If you're a note taker, here's the three notes. One, the movement of shame. The movement of shame. Two, the words of shame. And three, the burden of shame. Let's start first with the movement of shame. Genesis 3, the the book, Genesis, the name, means the book of generation. It's the beginning of our story, though it's not the beginning of the story. God exists from eternity past, Father, Son, and Spirit, but Genesis captures the creation of our world and our creation. All that is created, we are told in Genesis 1 and 2, as God creates it, is 
good. And then the pinnacle of creation comes as the Lord God Himself makes in His image man and woman and declares them very good. And yet, at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3 and verses 1 on down through 6, we read of how those created in the image of God, created in relationship and intimacy with Him, created to be His royal priests, to rule and reign over creation alongside of Him, in His good pleasure, bringing His glory and honor and fame and renown into the wider world that they were placed into, that man and that woman doubt the goodness of God believed the lies of the serpent and sin against him, rebelling against his perfect rule and reign. And the results of that sin are captured in verse 7. Pastor Adam read it for you. After they have sinned, Adam and Eve, it says in verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. The, the, the word that is in the Hebrew here for naked doesn't primarily draw a, a depiction that they didn't have clothes on. It, it's something deeper that they're saying when they say that Adam and Eve recognized that they were naked. For the first time, when they see that they are naked, Adam and Eve look at their form created by the perfect Creator and determine that their bodies, their skin, their form is off. It's wrong. It's lacking. It's, it's shameful. Even though God had declared them and their form very good. Let me give you a shocking truth. Humans, by birth, are naked. Yeah, I went to four years of McKendry to figure that out. Okay, that's what they taught me in biology. Here's, Here's what I actually mean by that. Humans, apart from some of us, don't have thick fur. Some of us do on our backs and, you know, fronts, but that's a different story of the fall and how that all worked its way out. And we won't, you know, we don't have fur. We don't have scales. We don't have a covering. We are, by nature, naked. Which means that by nature we are vulnerable creatures. And up until this point in creation, that wasn't a big deal. Up until this point, that wasn't a problem. If you don't believe me, believe the Lord. Because in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, it says this, And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not what? Ashamed. I'm not much of a math major, but it appears that only seven verses later, they are now naked and ashamed. Nakedness was not inherently shameful. It did not make Adam and Eve up till this point feel an experience of lack or loss or vulnerability of fear. And yet now because of sin and the advent of shame that comes with it, they fear that their vulnerability, their nakedness 
will no longer be celebrated by God as good, but will somehow be exploited for their harm. That somehow now their nakedness may cause pain rather than simply being a part of their joyful existence. Let me put it maybe in a different, easier depiction. Before moving here to Plant Mercy's Door, we lived in Chicago. Now, Chicago, during January, while we lived there, always was like negative something. It didn't really matter what the number was. When there was a negative, it was terrible. Right? Now, in Austin, Georgetown, where we live, in Texas, negative numbers don't exist. Triple-digit numbers exist a lot. If I was in Austin or Georgetown in the middle of July or August, which we will be, and after a long day of work, I had on long sleeves and long pants and was working outside, and then at the end of the day, I took the long sleeves off and the long pants off, and I was in a swimsuit, it would feel really good. The breeze, as long as it didn't set me on fire, which sometimes it feels like it's going to, would feel good on my skin. Okay? Transplant that same scenario to January in Chicago. If I was once again outside near the end of the day and decided, you know what, I'm going to take off my long sleeves and my my long pants, and I'm just going to stand outside in the beautiful wind in my swim trunks, I would die of hypothermia. Right? Nakedness in one is a joy as long as you're not in my backyard with me or my kids. Sorry, guys. Nakedness in the other, besides being a felony, is also really harmful and dangerous. Adam and Eve have determined now that because of sin and shame, who they were and how they were created is no longer life-giving, but is threatening to them. And so what do they do? It says in verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid for themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Adam and Eve hide. They hide not just from each other, but from the Lord. Hear this, shame is not just a feeling, it is a movement. Shame is a movement away from community, a movement away from relationship, and ultimately a movement away from the Lord. We are made to move towards others, especially in our need. How do I know this? Because I have five kids. And when kids are young and they scratch their leg or they stub their toe or when they're upset at their brother or sister... What do they do? They run towards mom or dad. Up, up, pick me up. I need help. Even when they don't really need help, they run towards mom or dad. Uh, uh, About four or five months ago, Rachel came back uh, to visit her family because of some health issues going on with her folks. And when she came back, she, she took Jude, our youngest, with us, but the other four stayed with me. And this was like a moment where I just looked at the other four kids and I was like, listen, we are going to survive somehow, some way. 
Mom will be gone for a week, but the Lord will be with us. And I thought it went pretty well. I mean, there was a lot of tears, but everyone was alive when she came back. Uh, But when she came back, like all of our kids, like the door opened, and then like I thought maybe the house was on fire by which the speed they were running out of the house towards her. And they were like, thank you, God, for letting my mom come back. I was like, okay. My children still run to my wife when they are in need of not being alone with their father. Right? This is a natural response to us. When we are in need, we run to those who will help, who will heal, who will comfort, who will bring life. But in our shame, our fleshly reaction is not to run towards the Lord, but to run away from Him. Even though He is the Lord our God who can literally pick us up and He is the only one who can truly heal and comfort and bring relief to our wounds, including the wounds that we create for ourselves through sin. I remember reading this passage when I was preparing to preach it, and what occurred to me was, as I was reading verse 8, and it said, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid What occurred to me is how many other times they had heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day, and every other time up until that point, the type of elation and joy and comfort and celebration that sound had brought them. Every other moment, every other day, when they heard the sound of the Lord, their their hearts would have skipped a beat out of joy. Oh my God is coming. He's coming to be with me. He's coming to be next to me. I get to be with Him. The most beautiful one, the most loving and gracious and merciful one, I get to be with Him. And then this time, because of shame, it brings them fear and panic and they hide. In shame, we move away from relationship. In shame, we move away from the Lord. But how does the Lord move in our shame? Well, we just read it. What happens when Adam and Eve sin? What happens in the midst of their shame? The Lord God moves toward them. We run from Him and He comes to us. The Lord knows what has happened. He does not draw back. He doesn't remove themselves from his, their presence. And he's not unaffected by our sin, by the way. He didn't move toward them because sin and rebellion against him was no big deal. If you don't believe me, read the book of Hosea, where the Lord God says, How can I give you up, though you have rebelled against me like an adulterous wife? He moves toward them, even in the midst of being affected by our sin. He does not cut them off, but instead He shows who He is by doing what He will do throughout the pages of Scripture and all of history, which is draw ever closer to sinful, shame-filled humanity. Like, think for a second. 
If I asked you the question, what is the Lord doing in your life right now? And without knowing anything about your story, how your today, your yesterday, or even the last year went, I can tell you the answer. He's drawing closer. He's pulling you in. He's coming to you. Maybe another way to put it is that because the Lord moves towards us, we don't even have to take on the responsibility of running towards Him. Because even in our shame, when we hide, He comes towards us. This is the grand story of who our God is, and it culminates in Jesus and in His coming. The Gospel writer John, which you just spent not nearly as long as you would have if I was preaching, but still a long time, says that He came to His people, even though He knew His people would reject Him. Scripture says, Luke 19, He came, Jesus, to seek and save the lost. John 3, He came not to condemn, but to reconcile. He tells the parable that He is the good shepherd that leaves the 99 in order to pursue, to go to, to move towards the one. And by the, one, the, by the way, the one is not cute and cuddly because He left the 99. I've been in a situation where one of my five have wandered off. And very rarely do I think, oh, that's so cute. Just totally wandered off in the midst of this crowd and I get to go look for him. So lovely. Thank you for doing that. But we think it's cute and cuddly. Why? Because the the Lord Jesus tells the story not as if, I'll go for the one. No, He says, I will go for the one. I will put it on my shoulders. I will bring that one back. And then we will celebrate. The Lord moves towards us. I was listening to a uh, podcast recently with Rachel, and they were talking about uh, the way that newborn infants, right, the closest thing that we have to just seeing what the nature of humanity is versus what nurture will end up doing to it. They were talking about the singular focus of a newborn infant the moment that it's born. And this was the quote, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. He said, a newborn infant, when he comes out of the womb, when she comes out of the womb, is immediately looking for someone that is looking for them. Listen to that again. In our nature, when we come out of the womb, we are looking for someone that is looking for us. Can I just tell you? Your Creator is looking for you. Your Creator is coming towards you. There's a song in the, the 70s by a band called Cheap Trick. I want you to want me. I need you to need me. I'd love you to love me. I'm begging you to beg me. That one might not work. You know, but if you ever run into Cheap Trick, I, I don't know what those guys look like now. Probably not great. <laughs> After 30 plus years of rocking out. Um, but maybe just tell them, hey, you could have stopped singing that song a long time ago. Because the God of creation, he loves you like that. And he wants you like that. And he draws close to you like that. That is the movement of shame. In shame, we move away from the Lord. But in shame, he moves 
towards us. In the midst of our shame, he comes for us. But now let's look at the words of shame. The story goes on in verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he, the Lord, said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, well, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, see, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Shame is a movement, but shame also presents itself in our words. Unless you think words are unimportant, Scripture makes clear that our words give a diagnostic view of what is in our heart. So what are the words of humanity in shame and what are the words of the Lord to humanity in their sin and shame? Well, the Lord speaks first. And can I just tell you this? You want that always to be the case. Because your voice will be loud and it will be quick and it will preach death to you. But look at what the Lord God says. Where are you? Now, we have to remember who the Lord is. He is omniscient. He knows all things. He's not looking for information when he asks Adam and Eve, where are you? So why is he asking the question? And the truth is, he's asking the question for the sake of Adam and Eve. And also, by the way, notice what the Lord doesn't say. His first question is not, what did you do? His first question is not even, why did you do it? And if we're just being honest, the internal voice that we have in our head, probably for the Lord, would assume that in the midst of and directly after sin, sin that, by the way, is going to wreck the world, kind of a big one, our internal voice for the Lord probably sounds like Him coming to us saying, what did you do? I can't believe it. But the Lord draws near and says, where are you, Adam? Where are you, Eve? He asked them a question to try and clear the fog that sin and shame had already settled over them. Where are you, Adam? Well, the first answer, as Monty Python would say, I'm not dead yet. Anybody catch that reference? No? Okay, seven or eight people. I got an amen. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. By the way, the church that we just planted, everybody is younger than me, uh, and no one gets my cultural references at all. So I just now make them up. I just like make up titles of movies that don't exist, and they just assume that I have no life. And that is 50% correct. Um, yeah, the answer is he's not dead. That's the first shocking answer because what does the Lord say will happen when Adam and Eve eat of the tree of which they are commanded not to? You shall surely die. Already the Lord is being lavishly, unimaginably gracious. And by the way, as we'll see, already the sin of humanity is being heaped on the shoulders of Jesus. Already. Where are you? 
still alive. What's the second answer to where are you? Well, for Adam and Eve right now, the answer is I'm actually still face to face with you. I'm still here in the garden. Yes, there will be consequences and we will read of them. But for this moment, at least the answer is you're still here and I'm still here. And then, of course, the final answer, where are you, for Adam, is I am hiding. The Lord comes to these sinners, these men and women, this man and woman, heaped, clothed, covered, drowning in shame. And he doesn't first come to pass out judgment, but first he comes and cares for them. He reveals to them that something terrible has happened. He helps them see that they are hiding. Because often in our shame, we move without conscious decision, but simply as reaction. I must hide. I must cover up. I must lie even. I wish I could tell you that I made like a a long pros and cons list and intentionally decided that I wasn't going to wear the brace as I came here. I didn't. I woke up and simply within me felt, "Mm, not going to do that. So the Lord comes and He helps to clear the fog. And then He does something as wonderful as His initial question, which is He invites them into confession. And this is as much of a grace as the previous statement and question of the Lord. Sin separates us, and confession is the opportunity the Lord gives us to bring that separation into the light and in His presence have that separation reconciled by Him. When confession doesn't occur, the fracture that sin and shame brings only gets worse. Right before I left for college, in between my senior year of high school and my freshman year of college, I was playing a a, a pickup football game, and I separated my left shoulder. And I was supposed to go and play football in college, and I do that because of what I did most people wouldn't call play. Um, But I was on the team. Uh, And so I was like, well, listen, I'm not going to do surgery. I'm not going to go see a doctor. Like, I'll just deal with it. And it got to the point that I distinctly remember multiple times sitting in my dorm room and I'd fall asleep with like my, my hands behind my head and I'd wake up and my shoulder would be out of socket. And I would wake up just like, what am I supposed to do now? Like, I can't call my mom. I mean, I could like on my cell, but. And so I would just like sit there and like try and figure out like, can I move just a little bit to where it'll go back in socket and not incredibly hurt? The answer to that was no. It, it got so bad to the point that later on, I, I, that, the next summer, I dove into a pool, like from the side, and you know that really rough feeling that you get where your fingers go into water? Caused my shoulder to separate, right? If you don't address the fracture, it doesn't heal itself, it gets worse. And that's why the Lord God invites Adam and Eve into confession, The psalmist, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. 
So I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity and said, I will confess my transgression to you, Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David himself said, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. The Lord invites Adam and Eve into the light. But what, what do Adam and Eve do? Do they take the invitation? No. Because shame is powerful. So they deflect and they blame rather than accept the Lord's invitation. Adam, God, it's your fault. Bold move, Adam. Bold move. Like just, like, if, if people don't think that when people sin, they tend to just tunnel deeper into that sin... You just kind of like a caged animal. I don't know. I'm not like, you know. My experience with caged animal is fairly limited. Just a few times when I've been in cage with a wild animal. But when I have and saw it on the Discovery Channel, they seem to be angry. And they don't like, they just, they hunker down and they're ready to go. And that's what we do in sin. We're like, oh yeah, God. I sinned once. Let's do it again. Adam says, God, I mean, the woman you gave me. You know, and you know the rule of marriage, God. I got to do what she says. And so I'm just I'm just trying to be a good husband here, God. So pretty much it's you and her. You should talk to her. I'm going to go over here. Okay, I may have had that conversation with the Lord at other times, not primarily about fruit, but, you know, other things. And Eve is just as quick to blame. She says, no, 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 the serpent, the serpent did this. Here's what I need you to hear. In shame, it's natural for us to hide, deflect, excuse, blame, and lie, which means it is supernatural to confess. And that's why we do it corporately. Here, gathered in the presence where God says, my people are, I am there, relying on the powerful supernatural work of the Spirit, we corporately come before the Lord and say, Apart from you, I am sinful, broken, cast off, sentenced to death, separated from you. I have sinned again and again and again. Like maybe I need to say this because I'll say it to myself. Confession is not a signal of weakness before the Lord. It's a signal and a sign of the gospel and the powerful working of the Spirit that is bringing you, reconciling you back to Him. The words of the Lord reveal that He cares for us, that His, toward, his heart is towards us even in the midst of our sin, and that He is seeking restoration and reconciliation even while we are not. Those are the words of shame, ours and his. And finally, let's look at the burden of shame. So what is the result, the ultimate results of sin and shame? And how are we going to deal with them? Well, the answer is we won't. It says this starting in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity 
between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, and you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the man called his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Perhaps we think we know this story, and we know now the pronouncement that the Lord is going to give about the curse and the weight and the burden of sin. But if you look closer, my guess is our assumptions are off. Yes, the results of sin are horrific, terrible. They fracture perfection and peace that the Lord God had made in creation, but notice Two very important things. First, the Lord God does not say that this curse will last forever. He does not say that there is no hope. And second, He does not ask humanity, us, to fix things. He does not say our hope rests on us. In fact, what the Lord God says is there is hope of restoration and redemption, and it does not have, quite honestly, anything to do with us. As the Lord is pronouncing a curse over the serpent, the man, and the woman, before he even gets it all the way out, he says to the serpent that there will be war between his offspring and the offspring of the woman, the offspring of humanity, until one day when one born of a woman would once again come into conflict with him, and while the serpent would bruise, and that Hebrew word is literally to gash or to gape, though the serpent would gash his heel, this one born of the woman would gash, gape, crush his head. Hear this. Has the Lord God given any curse to the man or woman yet? But what has he already done? He's already given him the gospel. It's always bigger. Always more powerful. Always comes first. The Lord already promising to restore. Promising to redeem. Promising to heal. Giving hope. And if we or Adam and Eve are not sure where this serpent slayer, this redeemer, this healer, this savior will come from, God gives them and us another clear clue. After telling them about the effects and impacts of sin and how it will shape for at least a time the world, we come all the way down to verses 20 and 21. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living things. And then this little aside it feels like and the lord god made for adam and for his wife 
garments of skin and clothed them. Who clothes them? The Lord does. Who covers them? The Lord does. Who already and yet still in their sin is providing for them? The Lord does. Who protects them? The Lord does. He is the one. The fig leaves could not cover Adam and Eve's shame. So he clothes them. And how does he clothe them? Through the death of another. Skins. Skins. Which already is showing that forgiveness, that covering, that redemption and reconciliation will cost the life of another. Shame feels like a burden. It's heavy. You can feel it in your chest and on your shoulder because it exposes for us our neediness, our lack, our vulnerability, our inadequacy, our brokenness. But hear this, the burden of shame doesn't rest on us because the Lord himself has taken our shame upon his shoulders. I know a lot of you guys have a background in the Catholic Church and you walk into any Catholic Church and there will be a picture of a crucifix with Jesus on it. What is Jesus always wearing? A cloth. He wasn't. He was naked and ashamed. Not because of his sin did he suffer the consequences of shame, but because of ours. Jesus was not just killed. He was not just punished or tortured. He was shamed. He was mocked. He was jeered. He was spit upon. He was called unworthy. He was called inadequate. He was labeled a failure. He was denied. He was left by himself. All of the things that shame tells us will occur because of our own brokenness or the brokenness of the world, Jesus placed upon his shoulders. He is not just the servant or the man of sorrows. He is also the man of shame. And this man, in his shame on the cross, looked to his right and saw a thief Another Adam, justly suffering because of the weight of his own sin. And Jesus says to him, tomorrow you will be with me in paradise. That word paradise is the same word for garden, the same word for Eden. Jesus says to him, I have bore your shame. I have gone outside of the camp. I have gone outside of the city. I have been hung upon a cross. I have experienced the death that you have deserved. I have taken upon my shoulders condemnation, shame, vulnerability, isolation, unworthiness, a lack of value so that you can re-enter into the presence of the Lord. 
Hear these things. The answer to shame is not to deny it. It's not to despair of it. It isn't to try and fix it. As a matter of fact, the beauty of the answer is the answer to shame has nothing to do with you. The answer to shame is our Savior, Jesus. Which means that shame is healed in the presence of Christ. Shame, like all of our behavior patterns and thought patterns, are healed in community. The presence of Christ, the community of Christ, sometimes it's on a cross like the thief. Sometimes it is with him in prayer and silence and solitude, and oftentimes for us it is in the presence of his body, the church. But now, in Christ, our shame can no longer move us too far from him. Now, in Christ, the words of our own shame no longer have the final words he does. And now, in Christ, we no longer bear the brunt, the results, the burden, the shame of our sin and this sinful world. He does. And so we get to simply say to him, thank you. Pray with me.